Hello, welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. And Autumn. Hi, I'm Autumn. We've been reading books around here. Me, not really, it's but true. a little bit. Well, if you have the smallest thing to talk about, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, read about half of Reinventing Comics, Scott McCloud's follow-up to Understanding Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might like it better than the first book. Um, I think it's, like, a very, like, strange and, um, you could not have made this in any year other than, like, 1999 to 2000. Like, I feel like if you made this, I'm just paging through it now, and if you made this in 2021, it would be a video essay. It would be 90 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the fact that, uh... Scott McCloud decided to make what could, what probably would make the most sense in 2021 as a video essay as comics is like I think one of the strengths of those things. Yeah. Um like I think I think one thing that's true is that if for some reason he were to make these today, I think he'd still do them as comics. Mm-hmm. I just think that people reading them as comics would be like why isn't this a video essay? Yeah, exactly. But they'd be wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the masses now. <clears throat> I'm saying why isn't this a video essay? Um. <laughs> I mean, the reason that it's uh, not a video essay is, like, Scott McCloud's, like, um, you know, he describes himself early in the book as a comics loyalist. He's, like, interested and as, as he's interested in comics for comics' sake. Uh, like, he is interested in sequential art more than he is interested in, like, video. And part of that interest comes from, like... Uh, Part of that interest comes from, like, comics. He sees this great potential, but they are not the sort of, like... They do not have the sort of, like, cultural dominance that, like, moving images or, um, like, literature or music has. He's interested in comics specifically because they are, uh, like, slightly looked down on things. And that's what he's talking about in Reinventing Comics. And so that's why it's not a video essay. Um, But, um... Yeah, it's a really good book. It's, um, I'm about halfway through. I haven't gotten into, I've only just scratched the surface on, like, him talking about, like, new media and, like, you know, the digital age. Um, the first, slightly less than half of the book is him talking about, like, um, you know, the sorts of, like, progress towards seeing towards the general public seeing, like, comics as, like, literature and art and progress within the medium um, on, like, creators' rights and progress within the medium on, like, diversity and all these sorts of things. I've gotten through most of that, and now I am just now getting into, like, what the book is really about, which is, like, how can comics embrace, like, the the coming, like, age of the internet, you know? Um... Which is funny because I had to buy a paperback of this book because it's not available uh, digitally. <laughs> oh, that's mm. <laughs> it's fine. I, it was a good use of the money. I like having it in it's my hands. Nice I like looking. It's a nice. Uh, this is a book that I remember seeing on because my stepmom teaches painting, and so she had Understanding Comics, and she had Reinventing and Making Comics when I was a kid. I remember seeing them on her shelf. These are not the editions that she had on her shelf, because she had, like, very old publications, like, when they were first, you know, running. These are, like, 
you know, McLeod has, like, done new covers so that they all look kind of uniform and they've got nice spines yeah, on Yeah, the, the back of it says, uh, the seminal new century manifesto of the many futures of comics art. Yeah, so. It's a book that can only happen before 9-11. I like the phrase new century. Yeah. It's better than Y2K. This is, this is also part of why I was watching The Matrix a little bit, because I just... <laughs> no, like, I just... Was reading this and was like, what a weird moment, like, 1998 to 2000, like, September 10th, 2001 is. Of, like, ah, the the future is wide open, could be anything, and then the future very quickly becomes closed off. The the future is quickly revealed to be, no, it's more of the same. Yeah. It's this forever. It's this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's a a really good book. Um, I think I've talked before about, like, you know, when I first read Understanding Comics, I was like, oh, what a quaint little piece of, like, 90s stuff. We, we've we all moved past that. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, um, ever, like, the further I get from Understanding Comics, the more I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is just my entire brain now. Let me tell you, point. I'm pretty far from Understanding Comics myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, and this book is just a really good follow-up on that, and I'm just immediately vibing with it a lot more quickly than I did understanding comics. So yeah. you're gonna add this to your Goodreads for your reading challenge? Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a book. It. It's got I'm an just, ISBN I'm, I'm putting asking. it on Goodreads. Jeez. <laughs> I thought about putting an ISBN on my book, but I never did. Yeah. <clears throat> um I've also been reading some comics. Do tell. Um yeah, well, uh I've conti- I continued in the last two weeks, I read some more Golden Kamui. It's still good. Um, I'm in a slightly frustrating place right now where I've read, like, uh, I want to say the first eight volumes. And then I also have volume 12 from the library. <laughs> but, like, 9 through 11 are on hold and I'm just waiting for them to show up. So this is one of the things I, you know, I love the fact that I can get a lot of comics from the library for free, but Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the ways in which it's not as convenient as just having, owning the comics. Yeah. Um, This was, um, when I read Pluto um, back in 2016, 2017, I just didn't finish it because somebody had just, like, taken, like... How many volumes is that book? Like, I want to say eight or nine. Somebody had just taken, like, volume five or six from the library, had never returned it, and so I just couldn't continue with reading Pluto, <laughs> which was very frustrating. Aww. That is very frustrating. It wasn't yeah. even, like... Because if they had taken volume one and never given it back, I would never have started Pluto, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, that's, that, that stinks. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. So, so reading more Golden Kamuy. Um, I don't really have more to say about that compared to like what I said before, just because like I don't want to get into the details of like the plot stuff. Um, I did mention last time, I believe that uh, there's a number of serial killers, and I don't like the gay serial killer, and I do like the transgender one. <laughs> and I reached the point. I reached the point where those characters are both in the story, and it's it's good to see the one that i like (laughs) she's she's just very good um she she eats people so that like she can gain like the qualities of their bodies that she wants um 
Hell like yeah. in the scene where she's in the scene where she's introduced, she she like runs a hotel and kills people who stay at her hotel. And in the scene where she's introduced, there's like a, a young couple, like a, a pair of like newlyweds, I think, who come to stay at her hotel and she kills them and like I guess eats the woman's like voice box because she wants her mm. like voice. So you see what I mean about this being very problematic, yes. but it also <laughs> I think it also rules. This is perfectly justified. What do you mean? <laughs> <sighs> That's a pretty anyway. sick concept for a character, though. Yeah. No, I yeah, I think so. I think she's <clears throat> very cool um, and like very uh, you know pretty evil. I would say, <laughs> like she's just she you know nice incredibly. Me. Well, she's very nice, also. <laughs> um, there is there is still good in her for sure <laughs> <sighs> um anyway uh i also since the last time i recorded i believe i started and finished monster um maybe i had had started monster when we last mm, anyway don't remember <laughs> monster really goddamn good uh People can become anything. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna get back to uh, that as like that is like the number one like I haven't been in a place to read much because I'm like working like stupid hours at work, but like that is like the number one like thing I've got to finish in my in I've, my mind. I've definitely seen this guy, but it's because we've talked about monster before on the podcast, and you were googling him last time. That might be the case. Which <laughs> which guy is it? Tenma. Is it? Um, Tenma, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's 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 one of the guys of all time. He does kind of look like the other guy from um, Standalone Complex, the normal guy. I or guess I can see what you're getting vibes. at. I guess I can see where you're going with that. Normal guy from Standalone <laughs> Complex. This is made better by you having downloaded <clears throat> Opera GX and having turned on the. Um, like clicky clack sounds as you're typing. Very, very, very faint little tick 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 as I type. And, and I so I, I'm getting that. The the listeners are not getting that. But this guy, the normal guy. I I know his. What's his I name? know who he is. I don't know his name. You know what? Uh, searching his uh, searching images is not going to get you his name. Anyway, it might Ma- because if I click a picture that's just of him, it might tell me information. I want Mark to talk about monster. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kugusa. I mean, sorry. Wait, huh? Oh, okay, no, sorry. I was thinking of a different dude. I I don't know. I, I really don't know from standalone complex. Um, huh, anyway, uh, yeah, monster. It's it's very good. Um, it's it's very like. Uh, Stop looking at spoilery images of Monster, please. <laughs> I don't know what's spoilers or what's not. Usually if you, like, type a, a, a fiction thing just into Google Image Search and you look at random <laughs> images of it, there's spoilers there. That's how the internet is. Um, <laughs> God, I'm sorry. It. I'm trying to, like, think of an actual thing to say, but I, I'm so, like... Uh, frazzled. I've... It's fine. I will. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read Monster soon, and so we can just like actually talk about it soon. Yeah, that would that would be cool. That yeah. would be cool. It's um, I, 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 
I really like love the characters in it. That's like the main, I guess, feeling that I'm having about it, thinking about it right now. Um, <sighs> I really love Tenma. I really love Nina. I, uh, um, yeah, gosh. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and then I've been continuing to read a little bit of Blind Sight, uh, which is still like the most kind of early 2000s atheist stuff ever. Uh, but uh, I don't, I don't know, not in a bad way from my perspective. Um, it's kind of a weird thing because, because I don't really take, uh, the kind of, um, in a certain sense, it's a very, like, almost didactic book, I guess, in that, like, it, it has these ideas about, like, the universe being kind of meaningless and, like, human, uh, human consciousness and human experience being, like, actually kind of bad, or at the very least, not, like, good evolutionary adaptations. And those ideas are, like, very depressing, and the book is at times really trying to hit you over the head with them. Um, but I kind of don't give a lot of credence to those ideas in a certain sense. And so, like, I don't know, do you ever read something that is really trying to, like, almost, you know, trying to propagandize a certain idea to you, but because you're just not interested in that idea, it just kind of slides off you. And yeah. You interact, you interact with the rest of what's going on. Yeah, for real. Um, and... So that's kind of been my experience with Blindsight, is that, like, every time it's like, oh, like, is, uh, is it maybe, like, actually kind of disadvantageous to human beings that we are self-conscious and that, like, we know who we are and we think about our own lives? I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I actually think it's very good to be, uh, like, a person with a mind, so I, I don't care about this. And then, you know, I'm just enjoying, like, the, the horror elements and the, like, character portrait of the really messed up dude who's the main guy and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's also a little unfair of me, I think, to just say, like, oh, I dismiss the ideas that this thing is about as being, like, you know, early 2000s atheist bullshit, and I don't care about that. Because it is, like... I do think the book is, in some sense, like, a really in-depth exploration of... I guess ideas that I think it's, like, worth considering. It's just that I feel like I have considered them. <laughs> um, and the book is continuing to be about them because it's a whole-ass book. That happens sometimes. Um, when you're, like, you, like, engage with something with a particular theme, and it's like, oh, this would have, this would have been, this would have hit differently if I hadn't already come to my own, like, conclusion about this idea. Mm -hmm. I, I've had that yeah. with certain things before. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's kind of the experience that I'm having with Blindsight. Um, and uh, then there's another thing that I've been, I guess, reading. Yeah, reading is definitely at least one accurate word for what I've been doing here. Um, which is Fall in London. Uh, do you two know what that is? Yes! I fucking love... Well... <laughs> I played Did a lot of Fall in London at one time, and it is very dear to my heart. And in the sort of way that it's like, oh, it's been a long time since I've 
I've gone back. What if it's bad? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I, I played, I got so into Fall in London at the very beginning of college. Like, I was deep in that. Um, and then I just sort of fell off of it because, you know, I had other stuff to do with my time, I guess. Um, and then in the time since then, uh, I like, the thing is, I've thought about it in the last couple years, and I've been kind of like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. Partly because of the thing you just mentioned, where it's like, is it actually good, or did I just think it was really cool because I was 18? Yeah. Um, but also, um, the one of the people who did, like, a lot of the writing, at least right. on, on the early part of it, and who's, like, kind of aesthetic is, like, in some ways, I think, pretty central to how it developed... Uh, is uh, a guy called Alexis Kennedy, who's a, a real shithead. Um, he was like, mm-hmm. you know, it came out a, a couple years ago that he was like sexually harassing his employees. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have all that much impacted his uh, place in like indie narrative games. Yeah. Unfortunately. I remember the allegations um, coming out after Cultist Simulator came out and Cultist Simulator like just continues to do well and get updates and like no one cares. <laughs> yeah, it like won a bunch of awards. It sucks. Yeah. Um I was also deep, deep into Cultist Simulator when that stuff came out. Mm-hmm. Um like uh Ben and I were fucking obsessed with Cultist Simulator, which if you know what Ben and me are like and what <laughs> kind of stuff we talk to each other about, maybe won't surprise you even a little bit. <laughs> um uh we had like fucking pages of notes. Um The thing is though, uh Alexis Kennedy was in fact, and this is always been true just one of many writers working on fall in london right and he no longer is a part of um fail better games which is the company that continues to develop fall in london um and so i guess what i kind of decided you know a week ago is like eh, yeah his writing is still in there but like he's not involved with it and it's not like i am it's not like by playing this game, I'm out there, like, telling people, like, oh, yeah, go support Alexis Kennedy. He's a great dude. Right. Um, and, yeah, it holds up. It totally holds up. I'm glad. Like, is it a little embarrassing that it's still steampunk in 2021? Maybe. <laughs> but, like, no, it's it's good. It's charming. Like, it it is, it really does manage to successfully hit a tone of, like, dark whimsy. And that is not easy. Like, there is so much stuff out there that is trying to be, like, a little bit dark and have, like, murder and, like, desperate Victorian orphans and stuff like that in it. But at the same time, be a little a little humorous and a little cute and maybe a little bit fairy tale-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, a, a little bit of maybe cosmic <gasps> horror mm-hmm. and a little bit of gothic. And that's, like... I think that's a tone that a lot of things try for because it seems easy. I think a lot of steampunk tries for this and it's like, it it's so easy for it to be, I mean, incredibly cringe. <laughs> right. Um, but no, I think Fallen London works and I should maybe talk about a little bit at, about what it actually is, by the yeah. way, like as a, as a game or as a narrative. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, the basic premise is that uh, this is, you know, like kind of a, a fantasy world where 
at some point in probably the 1880s, 1890s, London basically literally fell through a, like, crack in the earth into, like, the underworld. Um, and now it exists underground, um, and everything is, like, kind of weird and gothic, and there's, like, weird magic stuff happening, and, uh, death is something you can recover from without too much difficulty, and it's more of a, like, social embarrassment than it is, like, an actual end of existence. Um... And there are these weird entities uh, called, like, the Masters of the Bazaar that kind of, not secretly, but secretively run everything. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, okay, so that's the setting. It's, it's, it's uh, Victorian London, but everything is kind of weird and off and, like, magic-y and and goth. Um, And you start the story as, like, a... uh, a, a, a new arrival to this place who has just been thrown in prison. And the way the game works is that you uh, have, like, these four stats, basically. Um, watchful, shadowy, dangerous, and persuasive. And those are, you know, they're basically stats like you would have in a video game or a tabletop game. So it's, like, intelligence, sneakiness, like, fightiness, and, like, social stat basically um and you know you you it's a browser game so you'll just get like a little link to click through to a page or it's a little narrative and it'll be a little challenge for you so you know i think probably the first one in the game is something like you have a couple different options for how to get out of your jail cell you can do the watchful thing where you pay close attention and see when the jailer like uh maybe you might be able to get the keys from the jailer or you can I think there's a persuasive option where you charm the jailer or whatever. You know, you pick one of those and that kind of defines what your early qualities are. Um, And then, you know, you get out into this wider world and you can go to all these different places and interact with all these different storylines. And you also accumulate a lot of stuff. One of the things about this game is that it's, it's kind of got a lot of like economy to it. Yeah. Um, like that's one of the big things is that a lot of the um a lot of the like uh uh scenarios that you'll encounter will if you succeed at them eventually give you some kind of object which you can then potentially use in a different scenario or trade for something or um use up in some kind of way yeah um so i guess that's that's basically what it is uh you get a limited number of actions per day mm-hmm. And they kind of uh, refresh over time. It's it's so um, funny how this is both like feels very archaic, like web game from two thousand nine system, and also is kind of like the direction that like gotcha games and various things go in. In the mm-hmm. like it it strikes a very weird balance of feeling very of its moment and very like oh here's like the direction that this sort of design is going to go in. You know. Yeah. One thing that I think is quite nice about it is that, like, it, it does have, like, a monetization thing <clears throat> where, first of all, you can pay money to refresh your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, probably more interestingly, you can pay money to unlock certain storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's some possibility that I might do that at some point in the future because it does seem like the, you know, 
the storylines that you can pay to experience that seems like they're good, right? It seems like they put effort into those. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's very, like, it is pretty laid back about that. Um, it's not trying to push you super hard to pay in. Um, there's not a lot of, like, pay-to-win elements. Mm-hmm. Is there um, winning, in fact? I mean, well, so, like I said, you can succeed or fail at, like, mm-hmm. events mm-hmm. in the game. Um, but usually failing doesn't hurt you that much. Yeah. Um, like, often it really just means that you wasted an action, and those are going to refresh in a couple hours, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes you will actually lose a resource, and I think there are sometimes cases where, like, you can face consequences for failing that are genuinely frustrating, but at the same time... It tells you before you do something what your chances of success are. And right. so if you can see that you have like a 10% chance of success and you know that this thing that you're doing is uh, potentially going to risk something that you care about because it'll tell you, you know, you need to spend this resource to do this thing. So you'll kind of know that if you fail it, you're going to lose that resource. Basically, yeah, there are there are failure options, but I don't think the game... I don't think they're unfair, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Certainly there is no way to just, like, die and be locked out of the game. I don't think there's any way to get into, like, an unwinnable scenario. Yeah. Um, and, and right, also just in general, I suppose, to, to answer your question a little more directly, um, there's succeeding or failing at individual, uh, like, tasks, and there's, you know maybe uh, succeeding or failing to figure out what the next thing you need to do to advance a storyline is, but ultimately what you're doing is pursuing storylines. Yeah. Um, and there's usually it doesn't really have- like a couple different storylines you can pursue. So if you say it got locked out of one because you need to get like some resource or level up some skill or something, you can just go pursue a different storyline until you're ready to come back to this one. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, like, the the thing about, like, uh, is there pay to win? Like, I think there are some times when um, you can... So the, the like, the, the, the currency you can get if you pay money is called fate. Um, and if you... I think there are some times when you can spend fate to get a second chance at something or to, like... Um, I don't know, you can spend fate sometimes to try to succeed at an action that you otherwise might fail at, but uh, that's pretty, like, low-key. It is. I think it is very, very possible to play this game and have a really good time and experience just a wide, wide range of, like, content and narrative mm-hmm. uh, without spending any kind of money on it. Yeah. Um, that was my experience with it back in oh, 2013 when I was really into this, maybe. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, this is, it's also, but by the way, I feel like it's like slightly notable, uh, not to like, you know, give it enormous, enormous credit for this, but like since the very beginning, uh, it has given you the opportunity to be non-binary and like, when did this game start? Like, I think we've been saying like 2009. It's 2009, which I know because Nora has the Wikipedia page. Otherwise I would have no idea. (laughs) I've I've had it on the Fallen London Wikipedia page this whole conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, 
it's always been uh it's always been very cutesy about that uh where where like the you know at the very beginning of the game it's like uh are you a lady or a gentleman and you can say a lady a gentleman or your answer can be like how dare you ask me such a question do you understand that there are people roaming the streets of london with the heads of squids squids i bid you good day which is like the phrase it's cute on the wikipedia summary of the gameplay is players take the role of new arrivals to the underground down on their luck and make their way to the cream of the crop of the city's various legal and illegal activities players are gentle beings of leisure plumbing the vices and secrets of fallen London. gentle beings gentle beings (laughs) it's true But yeah, like it. Yeah, it's 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 got its cutesy mm-hmm. elements. Um, I I will not claim that there is like absolutely nothing in this game that's a little embarrassing to look back on, but I do think that, you know, it's it's. I do think that it's good. I think that is that is like sort of a. The fact that it is steampunk and from two thousand nine is like, seems parallel to that specific form of. Uh, specific tone of writing and like it feels like of course something that steampunk nerds would be into in 2009 would have would take that specific tone talking Mm -hmm. about like gender it just feels yeah yeah, so aligned in that way the other thing here is that like like i say i got i got into this i think in maybe 2013 ish and it is 100 percent tied into like simultaneously i'm getting into night veil you know. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I can totally see that. Night Vale just, like, I don't know if people know about this, know this about me. From, like, 2013 to 2016, I was listening to every single episode of Night Vale multiple times. Um, like, oh, wow. I was deep in it. I have considered giving that a shot a few times, and I've never actually pulled the trigger, despite buying the book. I bought the book for a, for a plain... Uh, a plane ride. What are they? The flight. That's a flight. Uh, for a flight, and I never actually read it, but I, yeah. I do own it, and I did read m- like half of the Alice isn't dead. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Book that I was mm-hmm. I was more uh, interested in that because it was sort of more direct, and I I fell off the first. I think I think I might have read like the opening of that book. I um I think I fell off. I while we've been talking, I pulled up on my phone like. Night Vale on their website has like a hey we've got a lot of episodes if you're just new to this and want to listen to a couple like here's some like here's like a best of and on the website it has like here's like one an early early episode here's like from episode 15 24 it has got a lot of really early episodes and it gets to episode 79 and then it jumps to episode 130 and somewhere in that gap where there's seemingly no good episodes, <laughs> somewhere in there is when I stopped listening. <laughs> because Night Vale got real bad for a couple of years, and it is pretty concurrent with Alice Isn't Dead and mm-hmm. it becoming a like media property. I remember listening to Alice Isn't Dead and thinking it was pretty engaging. That's why I bought the book. Um, it's not that Alice Isn't Dead ruined Night Vale, it's that like... That is a symptom of the thing that ruined Night Vale. Yeah, that they're doing, like, two live shows a year, mm. touring. Podcasts, huh? Popular podcasts. Yeah. You, you hate to see it. <laughs> yeah. You hate to see a podcast yeah. winning. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I, I feel like there are other, like, 
I, I also listened to Night Vale for quite some time and enjoyed it quite a bit, but also got a little sick of it after a while, around basically the same time that you're talking about. I also listened to a bit of Alice Isn't Dead. I, I think that... Um, I'm not going to claim that adding any kind of ongoing narrative to Night Vale was a mistake, um, but I think that it did get kind of too wrapped up yes. in its own ongoing narrative and in its, like, lore. Yes. Um, the, like... The mayoral campaign is, like, just... Yes. Interminable. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think also, like, it, it got a little bit... because As part of having a more sort of involved ongoing narrative and having more, like, characters that you care about... I think it also got a little bit into, like, trying to make you believe that there was, like, a a morally good side of things. Yes. You know? Yes. And, like, that there were, there were like, there was, like, a situation of oppression and people yes. who were trying to fight that oppression. Yes. And it was, like, this feels a little weird when, like, the thing we always liked about, or, like, the thing that I always liked, the thing that this kind of, I felt like Night Vale kind of started with was, like, this bizarre world where horrible things happen for no reason and everyone's fine with it. Yeah. This, and this feels so in line with what I saw of that guy's Trump-era posts online. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Recasting Cecil from, like, neutral observer of constant terrible things to, like, um, like, protagonist was a very weird move, um, I felt, uh, is certainly in some ways aligned with, you know, the Trump presidency, I think, mm -hmm. um, is certainly aligned with, like, the way that Tumblr latched onto that show and the sort of, like, uh, I was listening to Do Not Steal, and I think Olivia, like, put it really well. Like, the ways that people, like, need the media that they consume to reflect their own personal, like, politics and morality, you know? Um, and so you can't have Cecil be, like, neutral and just, like, observing all this terrible stuff. You need Cecil to be, like, a good person. Inspires us. You inspire I'm so us. sorry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> But yeah, um, accidentally clicked on a Telemundo ad on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, I was gonna just briefly ask, what is the horror podcast that feels in line with with Night Vale? That Magnus there Archives. We go. Yeah, I and and uh, I have not listened to Magnus Archives, but my understanding is that that also kind of gets wrapped up. In yeah lore and narrative and explaining things rather than being kind of like disconnected weird i have a friend who um, keeps like notes on that and like draws connections between that's where i was at with night vale at yeah, the time sure you know it was kind of in my head i was i was there with night vale and with this with the ways that adventure time would like not foreshadow stuff but would like do something weird and then like Four years later would be like, oh, that was a fun idea. What if we followed that up? You know? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think yeah. that... I think that Adventure Time was not often foreshadowing things, just picking things up. And I think at some point, Night Vale started, like, foreshadowing stuff mm. in a way that I did not care yeah. for. 
I, I think, by the way, I, I don't know totally for sure about this because, you know, there's a lot of content in the game. Um, I haven't gotten anywhere near, like, I, I'm still very early on. But I think that Fall in London manages to maintain that kind of, like, amorality mm-hmm. of, like, weird fiction. Yeah. Um, which I think is important because, like, yeah, this thing where, like, Night Vale needed to start having Cecil become... Someone you could root for, someone you thought was fighting for the oppressed, rather than, like, a neutral observer of, like, weirdness and horror. I think, I mean, on some level, because of its structure as a game, because you can make a lot of different decisions and essentially roleplay a lot of different types of character, I don't think Fallen London ever gets to a situation where it's like, we need you to, like, oppose the ways in which our horror world is bad. Um... Which I think is important because basically if you if you set up like a a horror setting and I'm neither neither Night Vale nor Fallen London ever like leaned incredibly hard into horror, but I think it's like obviously an element of both of them. Right. Um uh you know, like everyone in Fallen London there's no sun. They live underground and like Everyone is a little bit desperate for any kind of sense of, like, natural light and life of the surface. And there's a sense of, like, melancholy about that. But I don't think there's... I don't think that fixing that problem, changing the world and bringing the sun back, I do not think that that is, like, a concern of the game. Or if it is, it would be some kind of, like huge elaborate quest that you can engage with but don't have to mm-hmm. um because if what you like about the setting is that it's like weird and melancholy and depressing like it's gonna let you enjoy that I'm yes. also seeing some some perhaps inspirations here for um blades in the dark yes absolutely mm. yeah probably yeah um so maybe I should read uh, I will not do this but <laughs> I, you I, would you would like Fall in London. I do not have the time. I have to play Dungeons I, and Dragons Tactics for the PSP. <laughs> I have to. I think you would be interested in the ways that Fall in London. I think more than the the fiction itself. I think you would get a lot out of like the ways that Fall in London does like choice design and sort of like marries mm-hmm. like web game with tabletop with IF. I think that's something that you specifically like hits your interests. Uh, it is not going to be on how long. No, hold to on, beat. I'm going to type it into howlongtobeat.com. I'm not going to get anything here, but okay. Uh, yeah, that, uh, oh. so something that I did learn. <laughs> it just it doesn't have anything because there's not a way to beat Fallen London. Yeah, something that I learned the other day uh, because um, Ben like hangs out in a Discord server where there's a lot of people who play this game, and so when I was like just getting into it i was like ah what ambition do i want to choose because there's there's four big ambitions you can choose and those are kind of like the main plot of the game i guess um and so i was like ben please ask the people in this discord server like ask them if they can give kind of non-spoilery spoilery indications of kind of what those are like before i commit um and what he told me what's something he learned from this conversation is that they just made it possible to finish your ambition maybe like a year ago. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think that's inherently a bad thing, right? Because like the appeal of this game on some level is that like you 
you poke at it for maybe 10 minutes, a half an hour every day. If you're really invested, maybe you pay some money so you can play it a little more than that. But like, you just kind of poke away at it for days on end and like you watch it slowly unfold and you don't really want it to end. It's not really a, uh, it's a very open-ended narrative in that way. Uh, not to say that there, it isn't in some way very, very funny that they didn't make the ambitions complete until like now. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's not trying to be like, it's not trying to be a narrative that you wrap up really, I guess. Do you, and this is a thing I think about whenever the, there's these, like, second-person games uh, like this. Is this sort of a... Do you think that this is this is plays best when you play as yourself, or are you thinking of, like, a type of guide? I always just play it as myself. Mm-hmm. I always like to play as a type of guy. I will say that one of the things that's a little difficult about that is that if you really, really want to dedicate yourself to playing a type of guy... You are going to lock yourself out of some things. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, the one that I'm playing right now, I have this kind of idea in my head that this is maybe some sort of Ishmael dude. Uh, But but I want to engage with, Mm. say, the shadowy stuff where you're, like, being a sneaky guy. Um, And so, uh, just because, like, that's basically an entire fourth of the game. Mm. So I'm running around doing, like, pickpocketing, and that doesn't really feel very in character for this type of guy that I think I am. Um, so I, I think if you want to try to think of it in detail as a character that you're RPing, you may either end up kind of locking yourself out of a lot of stuff or playing a lot of things that you just kind of are like, yeah, but this doesn't really relate to my character. But I also don't think that's, like, so bad, mm-hmm. because it's like, well, every video game ever, right? <laughs> you, it, like, you're, you may have an idea of who you're role-playing, but then you're also going to, like, kill a lot of guys, and, like, that may or may not accord directly with the yeah. kind of guy you think you're role-playing, right? Yeah, so I, I don't feel like that's a huge failing. And I do think that, like, it makes it possible to... There are, like, these personal qualities, um, things like magnanimous, subtle, um, hedonistic, austere. And and they're kind of arranged in opposites. So hedonistic and austere are opposites of each other. But you can actually have both of them at the same time. And doing certain things will build up these kind of personality qualities. Um, You don't always know ahead of time which choices are going to have those effects. So it sometimes feels a little bit less like you can have a type of guy in your head and roleplay that, and a little bit more like the choices you take will end up building a type of guy. Mm. Um, and you'll realize, like, oh, I've become very magnanimous because I keep making decisions to, like, you know, um, chase down someone who stole a purse and give it back to the person who it was stolen from. Or, like, you know, just, like, save people from minor problems. And, and that makes me magnanimous. And that will, you know, eventually allow you maybe to do certain other things that you wouldn't be able to do if you didn't have that magnanimous score. Um so yeah, I actually think the question of like how much can you roleplay a type of guy in Fall in London is like very interesting and like a big part of its uh structure in a cool way. Should we talk about the hope of Elantris? Can I talk about the books that I read this oh, week? Oh <laughs> hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you're thinking to yourself, wow, the the first segment one's going long. 
the hope of Elantris was a waste of our fucking time, so you're getting your money's worth this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I finished The Name of the Wind. Fuck you. <laughs> We're talking about The Hope of Elantris. <laughs> no, tell me about What the did name you of think? Yeah, what did you think at the end of The Name so of the Wind? So fucking frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> this is an insufferable man. And mm-hmm. as Do you mean one Rothfuss or Caveau? Both. They're the same man. <laughs> um, yeah. But here's the thing about putting an insufferable man in front of a typewriter. It's the same as putting a thousand monkeys in front of a typewriter. Because eventually, there will be something cool or mm-hmm. interesting or engaging in that book. Mm-hmm. Just kind of by accident. Mm-hmm. And then it'll go back to, like, Kvothe and the tavern owner of the fancy place where all the, the, the best musicians around play. Just sharing a bottle of wine and being like, man... Two things you can't fucking predict. The wind and women. Am I right? Man. <laughs> women. Am I right? And then they just get drunker and drunker. Kvothe has this love interest who is very flighty and... Um, hard- like women are, am I right? Well, so she's she's got a tragic past and she's very like... She'll up and just leave the moment things get uncomfortable. And she doesn't uh, want to be like locked down or pinned down by anyone. Um, and so he's sort of like, oh, I'm in love with this girl, but I don't want to be like, everyone's in love with her. And I don't want to be like falling for her just the same as everyone else. What we have is is so special. Um, and so in the ending montage, uh, after their adventure together, he's just like going about his schooling at the magic school. Um, just being her friend and hanging out with her and all of her various boyfriends that she has. And we get this little thought uh, paragraph from Kvoth as through this montage. He says, I have known her longer, my smile said. True, you have been inside the circle of her arms, tasted her mouth, felt the warmth of her, and that is something I've never had. But there is a part of her that is only for me. You cannot touch it no matter how hard you might try. And after she has left, you... After she has left you, I will still be here making her laugh. My light shining in her. I will still be here long after she has forgotten your name. It is the worst shit in the world. I Oh, it's bad. I will defeat him in combat. <laughs> so It's it's literally like it's literally like friend zone logic. Yes. Yeah. But like so proud of itself for being that. Yes, I own her because I am in the friend zone. She is my property. And because I'm in the friend zone. There's a part of her that's mine, and you'll never have it. Um, this is after the adventure where um, the two of them end up um, dealing with this dragon. And the dragon is actually an animal called a dracus, which is this herbivore. It's a big lizard. It eats trees whole, and it breathes fire as like a sort of uh, mating call. Like I hate that this a... is a fun idea. Exactly, I hate that. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a cool dragon. There's a specific <laughs> resin that's being extracted from these trees. They find like the remnants of this little outpost where somebody's extracting this resin, which can be used as a very powerful painkiller or as a poison. Mm-hmm. And the dragon has started eating the trees and started, like, an overdose of this resin induces a, a um, euphoria and then mania and then eventually exhaustion. 
Uh, and too much of it obviously then leads on into like just dying in your sleep. Mm-hmm. And so this this big monster has been eating the whole trees. Right. And so it's all fucked up. And they're like, oh god, we have to put down this monster because the fire is like a, a mating call. And oh look, it's the harvest festival at the town a couple miles away where they're bur- they have a huge bonfire and they're burning like scarecrows to ward off demons. Right? This is so fun. <laughs> yeah. I hate this. And they're like, oh, we have to like kill this creature because otherwise it's going to attack this town. And it's big. It's like tw- it's like 15, 20 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, this town is a very fundamentalist town. So mm-hmm. when it attacks, they're like, oh, it's a demon. It's a demon. And like the way that he eventually manages to defeat it is by... We read far enough into the story to get the tale of the Iron Wheel. Yeah. Where, like, God and this demon fight each other and, like, God pins him to this Iron Wheel as they both burn. Mm-hmm. Because Iron kills demons. Mm-hmm. This town's church has a huge, whole Iron Wheel on its, like, face. Mm-hmm. Like, full iron. Because it's, like, nearby a mine, another mining town. And so he pulls out this magnet... It's like lodestone. Um, and so does his like arcane magic, his like connection magic that sort of like ties things together. And so he has a scale from the monster that is magnetic and he has this magnet and he like casts this spell and then lets it go so that it snaps into the magnet. And then that causes the big iron wheel on the church to like attract toward the monster underneath it and kill it. So to the, all of these country bumpkins, this demon attacked their town, and ev- essentially their giant crucifix falls down and kills the demon. And so now he has to, like, step into this role of, like, the town savior, but also, like, not contradict the idea that God killed this demon. Mm-hmm. But it was actually just a monster. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, all this, like really obnoxious atheism stuff because he's like very dismissive of these people as he's doing all this i'm rolling my eyes but you can see how there's like little threads of like kind of fun adventure stuff happening yeah but being woven into this really obnoxious bullshit yeah um i definitely think that like ah there's like a a mystical or like folkloric explanation for what's happening but really we understand the mechanics of how this monster works and it's not really a a demon exactly it just has this kind of like animal instinct i think that can be a thing that's really fun Mm -hmm. in a story um like in some sense that's like a thing that gene wolf does all the time uh but the thing that he does about it that makes it not i think obnoxious (laughs) is that like the the um non-materialist beliefs that people have in the story are usually not like total bullshit (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like they, they usually either like you understand how they got that, that explanation for it, or maybe you're left with some degree of ambiguity of like, well, maybe this really is actually a demon in some sense or things like that. There's a big difference, I think, between having something in your story that can have both like a material and a spiritual explanation and like playing with Mm -hmm. that 
and just like having religious people in your story be a bunch of fucking rubes who don't understand what a kaiju is. It, it switches from at the beginning of the investigation, because it's like, oh, these guys are so religious and so like controlling. I can't do anything here. I can't get any information about what's happening here. And then at the end of it, once they th- they start to think he might be some kind of envoy of god or like some kind of hero then it it flips and becomes okay how can i manipulate these people's beliefs in order to aid me in my personal quest which again Mm. could be fun in a uh a a certain story um i don't know why my mind jumps to vampire hunter d as an example of this like the type of guy who would who would do that kind of thing but like um that could be cool, but he's a big hero, actually. Mm-hmm. And he has his very saccharine scene where he gives a, a... He takes a piece of what would be one of his magic lanterns and gives it to this kid as like, this is a magic charm that will protect you from demons mm-hmm. as long as you believe in it. And But he knows. Yeah. Um. Anyway, all this to say that this book sucks. Yeah. And it's more frustrating because of the parts that I liked. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, even the framing story is fun of like, whenever it cuts back to the people telling the story, because it's both telling the story to Chronicler and his apprentice, who is a fey guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll like interrupt and like ask questions occasionally. Or um, take breaks. And then at the end... Like, a thing actually happens in the present day, and they're, like, attacked by this guy who might be a demon. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the ultimate thing that the apprentice guy tells Chronicler at the very end is, like, demons aren't real. There's only my kind. And so there's just good and bad fey. There's no such thing as actual demons, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why iron hurts them, because they're fairies. Um, which is like, also, I'm, I'm a little, uh, done with spooky fairies. Yeah. Like, I understand there was this, like, I feel like there's a lot of people who pulled toward that as opposed to the idea of fairies being, like, kind of childish and, uh not being able to take it seriously but it's also like when all you have is like you have the jokers and they're all like out to just kill people it's like that's not fun i feel like um uh uh like spooky unearthly fairies who have maybe a kind of fundamental malevolence or or just a kind of fundamental inhumanity to them Mm -hmm. That, to me, is is linked up in my mind with the kind of, like, dark whimsy that I was talking about that I think Fallen London succeeds at, but is, is very difficult to get right. Mm, mm. Um, I like that stuff when it's done well. I like that stuff when it's in just, like, a straight-up actual piece of folklore. Like, the fucking Ballad of Tam Lin. That's good shit. That's an evil fairy queen that I can get mm-hmm. behind. Um but I definitely agree with you that the, the like, evil fairies in the name of the wind get pretty exhausting. Yeah. Um, we also, like, get stuff with school life. Like, he has this bully 
antagonist that he like gets in trouble with and they they have a whole thing and eventually he he accidentally calls the name of the wind and uh almost gets expelled because he hurt another student with magic but then the, they all all of the all of the teachers vote to um reject the suspension the not suspension what's the word <sighs> expulsion. expulsion um they all unanimously vote to not have him expelled despite that being the actual um punishment for malfeasance which is to hurt somebody with magic um because now he's he's graduated to the next stage of of student there because now he can he has called a name and it's it's whatever <laughs> i i finished the book i don't know if i'm going to read the others Please don't i kind of want to know but also Please like don't. i'm not i don't the thing is that there's part of me that wants to know more about what's going on here. And part of me is like, I know that answer is not going to be good. I know that there's not going to be a good reveal here. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm reading this book. I've seen the tone that it takes. So every piece of mystery around the, the like, Denna, the female lead, is like, that's going to be, that's going to break bad. Uh-huh. And I don't trust any of this to have an interesting, like fantasy lore bullshit happening because they're like the whole through line is him his family was killed by the mythical like demon prince characters Mm -hmm. and he's trying to figure out what's their deal what are they doing are they real they're real they killed his family um but everyone thinks they're just like fairy tale figures and i don't actually trust this book or this author to give me something interesting with those guys and i just i don't actually think that the other reading more of it is going to be engaging yeah in Andres? no the other thing i did was i started reading a new book and uh it's a weird one so I hope to have it finished by next episode because it's not that long, um, and it is engaging enough that I think I'm going to finish it. But it's The Black Company by Glenn Cook, uh, which is weird and sort of grim, dark military fantasy fiction that is kind of fun so far. They're fighting a were leopard. Uh, mm-hmm. as like just a bunch of guys with spears and crossbows. So that's pretty that's pretty cool. There's some wizards. You don't really know what they do or how they do it, but yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. It's probably pretty um I assume that it's going to be a pretty conservative fantasy story because it is about <laughs> the troops. <laughs> yeah. Uh and I feel like I've heard distantly that this particular series is something like that. I feel like it's Fashy. I feel like I've gotten that vibe from people before, but I've never actually, like, asked about it. What I'm basically doing at this point is tracking down all of the uh, names that I remember seeing in the library when I was looking for Dragonlance books. And that's stuff like, you know, Glenn Cook. um, uh, I don't know. The... The... Wheel of Time guy. Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan. 
Uh, Terry Goodkind, uh, probably not. I might, I might read a Terry Goodkind, but I doubt it. You're gonna have a bad time. I'm gonna have a bad time. Um, the Shannara guy, is that Terry Brooks? Sure. Uh, but that's like the stuff that was in the library when I was reading Dragonlance books in like 2005 or something. Mm-hmm. Like, the, these, these are things that make me think that they are old when they're really like probably not that old. Mm-hmm. But some of them are, like, from the 80s or, or prior. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I like fantasy books, and I'm reading a broader swath of them than I have in the past. Because when I was a child reading these, I had, like, I read the three or four series that I liked. But I didn't read, like, a whole bunch of different sampling of styles before. Elantris? Mm-hmm. Nice. I guess so. All right. <laughs> I'm going to do this summary so fucking fast. No, you are not. I'm not reading that. I'm not reading it. It's too long. Also, nothing happens in the story. I Okay, we get a frame narrative. It's a couple months later. Raiden is king. He's waiting for Serene to come to dinner, but she's late because she's pregnant. Ooh. Uh, he says to Ash, like, hey, while we're waiting on Serene... Um, what, what were you up to during, like, um, the whole big battle at the end of the book? And Ash relays what he was up to at the big battle at the end of the book. And we are introduced to a new POV character, Matisse. Um, we'll circle back to her um, in, like, a big way um, because... Anyway, Matisse uh, has a job in New Elantris taking care of the children. Um, and she's also a teenager. She's, like, a teen. She's good at it. Before she was an Elantris, she was an orphan, and she has a new cool dad. We'll circle back to this in a moment, too. Um, Dashy, who we might remember from the main book. Yes. Uh, also, I have new audiobook narrators for this story specifically, so if I'm saying any names weird, uh, that's why. I've got Dash. You've got the narrators, though. Yeah, I've got Michael Kramer and Kate Reading. Who so are like, maybe maybe this is the canon one, and it's actually Rowden. No, stop. Anyway... <laughs> Um, so this is taking, like, this is taking place as, um, Raiden has sent Galadon back to, um, Elantris and is, like, trying to get everybody ready for the Dock Wormonks, basically. Um, he has not yet drawn the, um, the line that restores Elantris, so people are still, like, fucked up and weird, um, but they know about the chasm line in the drawing the aeons. Yes, and so Galadon is teaching everybody how to draw aeons with the chasm line. So, <clears throat> um, Matisse um, is like getting ready for this attack, and she's trying to secret the children away. And her dad Dash is super cool and like stands up to the Dock War monks, but he's just a guy, so he gets fucked up real good. And Matisse is running away, and it's all scary, and then Raiden completes the chasm line, um, and they all become super cool, glowy people, and her cool new dad shows back up, and he beats the tar out of these Dakor monks. Um, I forget how Ash ties into this at all. Doesn't matter. None of the story matters. We go back to the present day, and Serene enters the dining room, pregnant belly first. Um... (laughs) Uh, and they have a nice dinner, um, uh, 
after oh i was gonna read that last part because i don't remember this last part very well ash finishes his story raiden understands that ash wanted to stay with the children until the crisis was over explaining his absence raiden then inquires to ash which of the two seons he sent dash for his services he gave to matisse expecting it to be ati instead matisse has uh been given ao which raiden uh considers equally appropriate ao means bravery um, the actual, the only thing that matters in any way about this story comes in the afterword from Brandon, in which he informs us <sighs> that after he wrote Elantris, he was dating the woman who would later become his wife, and she was a teacher. I don't know at what level, I'm going to assume high school. I'm, that's what I'm going to assume, because this sounds like a high school thing. Um, and by pure coincidence, um... One of her students um, does a book report on Elantris and is just really in love with this book. Loves Elantris a whole hell of a lot. And Brandon writes this story about a young girl named Matisse who is very brave. Um, he does not meet the real Matisse until much later, so it is not based on her. But basically, he's just, he's like, oh, this person loved my book. I will write a little short story for her about her being in my book. Um, That's why it's called The Hope of Elantris. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes... The, of the two Sions, Ati means hope and Ao means bravery. So really, since she got bravery, why is it called The Hope of Elantris? Because The Hope of Elantris is bravery. I don't fucking know. Fuck off, Brandon. Fuck off, this was a waste of my time. This was a waste of our time. No one was asking. When Ash was not on screen, we were not asking. Well, <laughs> I guess we were asking where's Ash, but we weren't in that moment. Yeah. This is something that Brandon did to impress a girl. Yes. And it worked. And then he put it on the internet for everyone to see. Yes. This, like, totally... Like, this... I can totally imagine how this would have been cute and charming for... Brandon's then girlfriend and for her student like yeah. yes it's it's sweet but like th there was no need for anybody else in the world to know about this <laughs> I feel like it makes it kind of weird and cheap yes. that he decided to post it online it's like it's like posting your love letters yes um the other thing here um the only, like, thing that is significant in any way, I feel like, is the sort of introduction of um, a Brandon trope that we are going to see in Mistborn. So I, I don't think this is a spoiler in any way. Um, that Brandon loves it when there is a cool girl who gets a found father. He loves that. It's so cool. <laughs> Yeah. He, he really belabors that point in this story specifically. It's like, wouldn't it be so cool if a girl who did not have a father got a father? Um, that is like the main thing that happens in this story. Is like, yeah. This is going to be a recurring thing throughout. Brandon, I just wanted to highlight it. 
The other thing here is that Serini doesn't need to be in this story at all. No. And she's only there so that we know for a fact that she's super preggers. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's... <laughs> it is somehow worse than Timothy Zahn writing about Leia being pregnant, which is such a... No, the thing about Timothy Zahn writing about Leia being pregnant is that he has no interest in the Leia side of Leia being pregnant. Mm -hmm. He's completely focused on the uh, twins and their force sensitivity Mm -hmm. and the fact that the Dark Lord Jeruah Sabaoth wants them for his own, to be his pupils when they're born. Yes. He's not interested in the size of her belly. (laughs) She entered the room pregnant belly first. It's so, like, tooth-gnashingly, eye-searingly horny. (laughs) (laughs) This is is the thing that I didn't connect in my mind until Nora said it this morning, which is that, like, it is definitely the sort of, like, fantasy of, we're gonna have sex someday and it's gonna fucking rule. (laughs) I... Yeah, man, something that I think is, like, something that I think just, yeah, the the vibes of what Brandon's early relationship with his wife and, like, his, his looking forward to being married and getting to have sex, which means being pregnant because the purpose of sex is pregnancy and the purpose of sex is marriage and the purpose of marriage is sex. That whole complex uh-huh. of, like, heterosexual <laughs> obsession is like, it's not in most of the story, because most of the story is not really about Serene and, and Rayadin, but the bits where it mentions Serene and mentions that she's pregnant, and I'm just like, oh man, Brandon, you gave this to the girl you were dating to impress her, and then you had it, her give it to an eighth grade girl, and you don't realize how creepy that is, because you come from a world where that just feels normal, and ugh, I'm not trying to say that wanting to marry your wife and have a baby with her is, like, disgusting. I'm just saying that, like, that the the way that heterosexuality thinks about being incredibly excited to get married and have children does not acknowledge the fact that that is like a weird thing to involve an eighth grader in, I guess. Uh, What a strange man. (laughs) What a strange little man. Uh, he, he's so like in the annotation, he's very smug about the fact that uh, he, he, he may be impressed uh, his girlfriend with this, and it's like, uh, the fact that I've just put one of Pemberley's favorite students, which I think that's, like, her online handle, one of Pemberley's favorite students into a story for her, then let Pemberley give the gift, did not escape me. I can't help it, but think it got me a few bonus points. After all, we did start dating exclusively just a short time after that, which mm. is, like, uh, the, also the whole idea of, like, dating exclusively is so also very funny. funny. Um, like, that he he was this down bad for her when they weren't even like an official couple. <laughs> down bad Brandon is a bad <laughs> down Badderson. <laughs> He's just waiting for the Sander Lance. Also also, like we talked earlier oh, about God. <laughs> we you talked tried to bulldoze over that and you couldn't <laughs> we talked earlier about Rothfuss and Kavoth being the same person I did not think that Sanderson and Raiden 
um, were the same person. But this afterward, where he's like, oh, I gave, uh, you know, my girlfriend the story to give to the eighth grader, um, like, that then recasts uh, Sanderson as Raiden and makes everything worse. <laughs> yeah. I wish this story just... I wish he could have just kept it as like a, a cute thing that he did for people in his life. I wish we didn't have to read it. I hope this doesn't come off as too melodramatic. Read outside the context of the Elantris novel, I think it might. I wrote it quickly, and I'm afraid it's not as polished or as intricate as I might have otherwise been able to make it. I realize it's not the finest piece of work I've done, and certainly wouldn't suggest it to anyone who hasn't read Elantris itself, as the story doesn't work at all, emotionally or plot-wise, if you aren't familiar with the novel. I also think it's not a good introduction to my work. But for what the story is, I'm quite pleased with it. This is from 2010. Um... The other thing he mentions is that, like, he has since become, like, friends or friendly with Matisse. She comes yes. to signings. She gave um, Brandon and his wife the uh, the original book report at their wedding, um, which is, is sweet. Like, that's endearing, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that this is, like, forged a sort of, like, long-term sure. friendship. yeah. Very strange. Very There's strange. no getting around how weird and gross some of this is. <laughs> it's just weird and uh, a waste of time. There's no... There's not, we didn't gain anything from this except... There wasn't even a like, oh shit, somebody said this like Cosmere vocabulary word that is interesting. Or There's like, nothing. It's like three years later, Brandon did have an idea for an Elantris 2, and he's planted seeds here. Yeah, there's Nothing. no foreshadowing. There's no, like, oh, this is a thread that the might get picked up. There's nothing. There's no, like, Sion stuff? Because, like, that was something that in in the annotation for the whole book, there was like, oh, there's a lot of, like, Sion stuff that got cut from Elantris. And this book, this story is supposedly like, oh, what was Ash doing? So you'd think there could be a little bit of Sion stuff. And, like, Sion's come up a lot in this story, but I almost forgot no, like, Ash was in the story. I might have. It's not it. Ash's POV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like, there's this whole thing about. There's a little bit of talk about, like, um. You know, uh. <laughs> like, Sion's being granted to people, mm -hmm. or, or past is the word, and that's kind of being treated as, like, this interesting thing of emotional significance, but, like, we don't learn anything new about it, and. And this thing about, like, the appropriateness of the name of the Sion is, is like, I, does it matter what Aeon a Sion has at its center? Does that have anything to do with the type of Sion it is? Does it have any powers based on that? Does that affect its personality? I mean, it feels does the that same as saying, like, yeah, it was pretty appropriate that Kaiji got the dog named Lucky. <laughs> um, God. This is the weirdest episode of this podcast yet. It, it, Brandon, you wasted my fucking time. <laughs> we could have been reading this born this week. <laughs> we could have been reading. I do feel like I do feel like we kind of did this to ourselves. We did you know, this. we yeah. probably could have decided. 
We probably could have decided, eh, we don't need to read The Hope of Elantris, you we know? We could have read but, it and then come to the Mistborn episode of it. Like, yeah, we read that. It didn't matter. I just thought it was going to matter. I just thought, yeah. um... How were, how were we to know? Yeah, I, I just thought that this was going to be foreshadowing or Cosmere or literally anything that mattered in any type of way. Um, yeah. And it wasn't. It wasted my time. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> uh, we have, like, one little thing to do before we finish the episode, yes. right? We got a question. We got yes. an email from Ina uh, about Elantris. I'm going to pull it up. It's uh, this tab right here. I very irresponsibly missed the window for the original Elantris questions, but Autumn said I should send this in anyway, so here it is. What are each of your... Uh, top and bottom three made-up fantasy words. Um, uh, there's nothing res- there's nothing restricting this to Elantris, but I think we should restrict this to Elantris. Like, Why? what's your... D- just to... Just to, like, keep it tight. Like, top and bottom three made-up Elantris words. I'm not gonna have a top three made-up Elantris words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't know how many... Like, made-up words there are in Elantra. I gotta say, I gotta take a... I don't think I'm gonna be able to answer this one. I'm really bad at picking favorites of things. Um, But I am curious about your discussions of this, and maybe I will be able to think of, like, some made-up fantasy words that I think are cool. Um, um, In a general sense, but... uh, Ina cites here uh, specifically Serini for bad mouthfeel and Gragdet. I was gonna say Dakor, perfectly fine fantasy word. Um, <laughs> wet boy. <laughs> not Elantris, you're breaking the rules. It's the email does not say Elantris, <laughs> and you're not the boss of me. <laughs> um, for more information on wet boys, listen to Export Audio, episode 139, with M, where we talked about Brent Weeks, uh... And uh, wet boys... I was using that as the possessive, but his name ends with an S. You didn't know. Brent Weeks' is, uh, Night Angel? I don't, know. Is, I that, don't know. is that him? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that MF named Durzo Blint, is that right? Yeah, Durzo Blint. Durzo Blint. Does that count as a made-up fantasy word? Yeah, I was going to say Diloph, really bad made-up fantasy I name. keep thinking of rice. Oh, like Pilaf rice? Yeah, like Pilaf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, Gragdet is great if you say it like a frog. Gragdet. <laughs> <laughs> um. What else did I hate in Elantris? Um. Um. What's the, what? I feel like we really flipped out about Gragdet being bad. Wern, um, is Wern's a good fun. fantasy word. Yeah. Is a good fantasy word. Because it kind of sounds like worm, but different. You know what? I, I'm i a fan of Driok Crushed Throat. I think that's pretty good. I... <laughs> I was... A, okay, in the moment of reading it, I was like, this is cringe, this is terrible. In hindsight, I just have to laugh at uh, her saying Driok Crushed Throat and him correcting it. <laughs> that's a that, crushed throat. <laughs> in the moment, the most cringe, unbearable shit ever... Uh. In hindsight, it's fine. Uh, what is Diloph's position? Like, what's his... Arcath. Like, 
Arteth. Bad fantasy Arteth word. Diloff of Fjordel. I want I want Brandon to stay stay away from the TH sound. It's a bad sound and he doesn't doesn't need The really funny thing is that he has an almost identical word that he uses way more in Stormlight, which is ardent, which is also just a normal word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's just instead of Arteth, now we have Ardents. Anyway. Yeah, I I kind of think when it comes to like fantasy language that I like it a little better when people make up words that have some kind of connection or reference to, I mean, to English because I read in English. I, I, th- I think I would probably enjoy this aesthetic effect in another language if I could read in that language, but I can't do that. But the point being, words that have some kind of connection to the language the book's actually in. Yes. So like ardent mean is a is an English word that means something. And then... Brandon Sanderson has given it a specific meaning in his stories. Yes. Um, I like that a little better than just straight up making up words like "gragged it." Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, there are times there are times when making up a word is is like worthwhile and and justified, but um, you know, uh, I think that um, I mean, I guess I think Fall in London does this pretty well because like it's got all kinds of like fantasy shit in it. With, like, made-up names, like, I don't know, to, to, to pluck one thing out of the ether, uh, one of the resources you can get is something called glim, mm. right? And that's not a real English word, but that's obviously a shortening of the word glimmer, yeah. and it's a it's a kind of crystally sparkly thing, so that's a name that makes sense. Um, I like that. Uh, I like the thing that Gene Wolfe does in the Book of the New Sun, where... He actually doesn't really make up any words. What he does is he uses a bunch of, like, really weird, archaic words. Um, and then occasionally he also puts words together out of, like, Greek and Latin roots. So I guess that is making words up. Um, but, like, you know, when he talks about... When when characters talk about, like, the their concept of God as the increate, that is actually a word in English, but, like, it's, it's very obscure, and it sounds like you've never heard it before. Mm-hmm. Um... And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I like that kind of thing better. I, I think, think so too. And I think it's this. I think it's Brandon moves more and more toward that style as time goes on. One of the downsides to making up your fantasy words mm-hmm. is that I was listening to the Black Company audiobook, and they kept talking about the tomb where they sealed the four Valaka, mm-hmm. and that's where the four Valaka were. And then they finally open it after it's been like. It was blasted by lightning and the seal was broken and they go inside and they're like, there must have been 58 of them in here and they all ate each other. I was like, wait, 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 wait. I thought there were four Valaka. (laughs) (laughs) But no, the word is four Valaka. And I would have known that if I were reading it, but I was listening to it. So I wasn't 100% sure and thought maybe there were four Valaka. <laughs> so you gotta you gotta tread carefully when you're making shit up. Um, Don't name something the door, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, where can people find you online? Ah, you can find my Twitter at Char Asnablunt. And you can listen to my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is about Moby Dick. Uh, you can find that at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. 
Uh, we were getting so close to the end of the book, and uh, it's it's no Sanderlanch, it's not structured like that, but I will say that things are getting extremely real uh, close to the end of the book. Um, Ahab is completely flying off the chain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's good. Autumn, where can people find you online? That's right. I you, took the reins. You can find me on Twitter, at autumnal underscore coffee. At autumnal underscore coffee, you can... Listen to all my other podcasts at exportodd.io. You should listen to the Bag End Book Club. Uh, we just recorded our first episode about uh, 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 the Fellowship of the Ring, and mm-hmm. it's a really good episode. It's really good four chapters of a book. Uh, Kicks the shit out of every other book that we've read on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. I am a huge Brandon Sanderson fan, like yeah. to my core. Mm hmm. Um, You're always speaking the ancient words. Always. <laughs> um, the first four chapters of Fellowship of the Ring are probably better than anything Brandon Sanderson <laughs> has written. <laughs> Look, there's a reason Tolkien is Tolkien, I suppose. <laughs> um, it is like... I had, at some point... You know, there's, um, there was, uh, a sort of, like, pushback against Lord of the Rings after the, uh, movie's success in, like, young writer circles that I was in, as, like, oh, Tolkien is kind of a little bit overrated, he's a little bit too much, and, like, you know, Mm -hmm. we can all, uh, move forward with the craft, and we don't have to be beholden to these, like, idols of the, of the... Of, like... The past. Of the past. Uh, but also, I now have gone back and I've been immersing myself in older, uh, like, fantasy works. But books and otherwise. And, yeah, Tolkien's really fucking good. Is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> is it, the, Turns the out. Lord of the Rings is one of the most influential pieces of fiction ever, uh, at least in this part of the world, uh, for a reason. Yeah. Um, and if you're wondering, speaking of which, of, like, the other very influential, uh, old piece of literature that I said I was reading last episode, I have not, uh, <coughs> I do not have much more to say about the Three Kingdoms at this time. Mm-hmm. I'm still poking away at it. Mm-hmm. There's some good guys in there. You can Nora. find me on Twitter at NeitherNora. You can find stuff I've done at NoraBlake.online. You should listen to Attention Duelists, my Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast with Olivia, and... Back to the Ark, my Marble Hornets podcast with Olivia, which we recently recorded a 15-minute episode of. Oh, wow. Yeah. Damn. Um, we're starting... Olivia's, Olivia's buying in. We're starting to hit the speculation... Yes! We're starting to hit the <laughs> speculation f- uh, phase of watching Marble Hornets. Of, yes! Like, <laughs> trying to like piece things together and like hit, figure out what's being hinted at. Um, so that's really fun. Um, we're coming up on the end of the first season in our recordings, which are pretty far ahead of when you'll hear it, but we need emails about the first season of Marble Hornets, so you should send those in to exportaudiopodcast at gmail.com and ask us about things like found footage, spooky tapes, masks, limb (laughs) systems, the pills. Maybe I'm just gonna. Maybe after we hang up this podcast, I'm just gonna get myself some lunch and watch Marble. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> um, 
I love that. That's another one of these things that, like, you were talking about. Like, oh, I really liked this when I was 18. I wonder if it's any good. And now I'm like, well, this is goofy, but it's really endearing. (laughs) These are just, this is made by a bunch of kids. Younger than I am now. Yeah. With, like, two cameras. Yeah. And I'm just, they're, they're doing their best, and I'm having a great time. Well, oh, uh, slight programming note. We're going to be back in two weeks. We are going to go down to bi-weekly for some amount of time. At least until we move, probably. Probably, because I am currently dying at my job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're working over 40 hours a week, and we're trying to move soon. Yeah. So, a lot of stuff's in the air, and uh, we're going back to bi-weekly, at least for now. Yeah, so... Which only means that the uh, what have we been reading segments are going to get longer. <laughs> I don't think we will have a repeat of today's recording like pretty regularly, unless but... I read all of Elantris or all of, <laughs> all of Monster in the next two weeks. I guess um, so. I don't. I don't trust myself to have much else to say. I. I like. It wasn't until like. You know, four or five days ago that I was like, I'm just going to finish the the second half of this book and listen to the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Subjected myself to Kaboth. Yeah. You hate to do that. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks. <laughs>